is helping Ukraine's small and medium enterprises a vital component of the country's recovery from the war? What are the challenges Ukraine is and will be facing from the war's large-scale destruction? You're listening to the podcast Explain Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. In this episode, I speak to Dana Pavlichko, owner of Osnovy Publishing and CEO of United for Ukraine, a foundation that provides emergency relief to people affected by this war. I also speak to Dana about Dmitro Pavlichko, her grandfather and prominent Ukrainian poet, politician and civic activist who passed away a few days ago. Hello, Donna. Thanks so much for joining this podcast again. Hi, I'm so happy to be back and I love speaking to you. And I know so many people uh, loved our previous discussion and have written to me and said that they, you know, adore your podcast and, and really love listening to you. Thank you. Let's let's maybe start with the tragic event, with the sad event. Dana, you you're from a fantastic family of Povlichko. And uh, the sad event in the past days is that your grandfather passed away, Dmitro Povlichko, who is a, a great Ukrainian poet and also a public intellectual, public activist, uh, a person without whom it is impossible to imagine Ukrainian independence. Uh, it is impossible to imagine the the declaration of the Ukrainian independence in 1991, in August 1991. Uh, looking back, uh, you, of course, you knew him um, much more personally than we know him, but than we knew him. Uh, how can you describe his personality and how can you describe the work that people like Pavlichko and Metro Pavlichko himself have done both in the Soviet Union and after the independence? Uh, he is just, you know, one of the most unique people I have ever met. And, um, you know, I, I don't say this because I'm his granddaughter. I, I say this truly. He was, you know, a f- phenomenal, renowned translator from many, many languages. He taught himself numerous languages, Polish, Slovak, English, he was a politician, a diplomat, a literary historian. He, uh, you know, was a absolutely fantastic poet. He had, you know, a brilliant character. He was so passionate. He could be so energetic, so so lovable. He would make you feel like you're the star. You know, he he really could light up any room, and at the same time, he could fight with anyone he could slam doors he would send his best friends to hell if if they did something he didn't like he would uh you know he could pound a table with his fist you know just absolutely a, a fantastic fantastic person and he had a great life and i also knew him personally you know uh very well cuz you know we i grew up with him our relationship wasn't easy, 
um, because we fought all the time. He always thought I have to do something different. I felt like, you know, he didn't understand, you know, what I'm even doing in life. Um, and um, I look back at these moments and I think that the life he lived was a f- exceptional life and he did what he was meant to do. And that's amazing. You know, nowadays, sometimes, you know, many of us, we don't do what we're supposed to do or what, we're, what we love. And, you know, I think this is like an insight that's really big for me right now. Look, what surprises me is that, not surprises me, but, you know, we tend to look at um, right now at, at the Soviet Union with, with a big suspicion and we are right to do so. Uh, and our current war against Russia is also a war against this this heritage of the Soviet Union, this totalitarian heritage. But at the same time, there is a temptation to think that, look, our Ukrainian culture has been exterminated in the 30s, and then it, it revived in late 80s and early 90s after the independence, and, and between it, there is a big hole, the black hole. And I think I think this is wrong, and uh, Dmitro Pavlichko's example shows that this is wrong, and uh, of some other, primarily painters and poets, uh, not so much philosophers, maybe not so much not so much prose writers, but but poets primarily. And what uh, what is interesting is how many people right now share uh, Dmitro's poems and and songs. So songs was something that entered into the life of Ukrainians. These Ukrainian songs written on 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 his poems, and songs was something that was a way of resistance. Even those songs of of the uh, Soviet Ukrainian Soviet popular culture, this they still were kind of a underground way to preserve the Ukrainian identity. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I would just like to go back to, you know, there being a black hole, right? I think that's, you know, definitely there was art, you know, and I was just talking to Tanya Kuchubinska, who's a phenomenal Ukrainian art historian, and she's actually preparing an exhibition in Dresden on Ukrainian art of the 20th century. And there's just so much there it's just not sometimes not even we know about this you know ukrainians so this this war is really pushing for a you know reevaluation of ukrainian culture for you know us studying ukrainian culture of the 20th century um so 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 i think that there's more to come and regarding the metro's uh, poetry and songs and they were they were definitely very anti-system, and they uh, there was a lot that was always very pro-Ukrainian, uh, for sure. And it's interesting. I mean, the, the very genre of song is is very interesting because uh, song uh, lyrics of the song is something that you memorial memorial memorialize <laughs> i don't know how to pronounce it correctly so it's something different from the written culture and i think this is a, one of the one of the elements of the ukrainian culture that it was uh, developing behind that written culture underneath the written culture without this song culture we wouldn't understand of course ukrainian romanticism 
uh, Taras Shevchenko and Markov of Chok. It's very inspired by by Ukrainian songs, of course, and then those collection of songs made by the first Ukrainian historians. But suddenly you realize that during the Soviet times, so the song was also kind of a, a means of these horizontal relations between people because you would sing those songs in kitchens, in, in gatherings. Uh, uh, and, and this is how the, the Ukrainian identity was, uh, was going from the generation to generation. Uh, for sure. And, and uh, Ukrainians, you know, have this phenomenal choir tradition and song tradition and it's just such a big part of our culture and what i love now because i'm just like really into popular culture is that high culture and low culture quote unquote you know it's all mixing and um you know even dmitro's classic uh two colors it's now part of you know popular culture and you know everyone knows the song you know, people don't even know who the author is. And and that's really great. Uh, and I, I really love that it's, you know, so popular amongst so many people now. And uh, I was reading recently that anecdote. I don't know if it's a true story, as if uh, when uh, Dmitro was talking to a censor and uh, it was a party uh, official and this party official was telling that, look, <clears throat> you wrote a Bandarit song because these two colors are uh, black and, and red. And he said, no, these are the colors of the uh, pa- uh, Commune de Paris, the Paris Commune, the, the, the revolution of the mid-19th century. Uh, and then he came back, uh, back home, opened the encyclopedia, and checked that it was true. Uh, but uh, this story, I don't know if it's apocryph- apocryphal story or true story, shows how suspicious was the, the, the Soviet censorship to any um, a, any expression of the Ukrainian patriotism, nationalism or whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I've heard this story from him and it just shows how witty he was, you know, how sneaky and how he managed to kind of trick them many, many times. And definitely, you know, it makes you just remember and think about, you know, how horrible the Soviet system was. And unfortunately, the Soviet system gave way to modern Russia. Your family is, is remarkable, and I cannot uh, cannot just avoid a question of, of your mother, Solomia Pavlichka. I think we talked about her as well during our previous conversation. But uh, from my perspective, I didn't know her personally. But when I look at Dmitro and I look at Solomia, these are different people because Solomia was so much open to the West and she was you know, working with Ukrainian modernism, with Ukrainian avant-garde tradition. And then, of course, feminism was very important for her. Uh, but do you see a continuity, Mitro, Solomia, yourself? Or rather, it is a interesting, also interesting, competition between generations? Um, I think there is continuity and there's competition. And and that's that's very normal and this happens. I think that on a personal level, Solomia and Dmitro were very similar, very passionate, very strong personalities, very confident, incredibly bright. I'm not sure I'm anywhere close to as bright as they were because both were, you know, just um, 
really strong thinkers and writers, and and they just really knew, you know, Ukrainian literature and history inside out. Um, and and it's it's normal, you know, that she was really open to the West. I mean, in my case, I, I, um, I you know, I think that I'm part of this this legacy of wanting to give to Ukraine and work with Ukraine and love Ukraine and support this uh, in any way possible. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a typical millennial at this point, you know, but, and have like a millennial, I think, approach to, to, to things. And that's why I really enjoy popular culture and mixture of, of things and, and mixture of, you know, different spheres and, and genres. But, um, I'm I'm definitely my mission is definitely to to you know make Ukraine a success. Right, right. Let let us talk about about the current uh, situation um, in Ukraine and the Russian invasion. You're working recently as far as I understand on the question of recovery, economic and cultural recovery. And uh I personally travel a lot across Ukraine. We visit uh, destroyed villages, we visit destroyed towns, and frankly speaking, every time when I come back from our trips, I come back with a huge, um, well, with, with with two feelings. The first feeling is how strong how strong Ukrainians are because they come back to these places even there even if they're destroyed they 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 have this feeling of life this love for life they they continue to to do something they did before the war but at the same time this is a very big feeling of despair because you understand how much you need to do uh, after the victory in which we all believe in but which still is very very far away and uh and sometimes I, I i tell myself that look okay we can we can do with recovery of cities but who cares about the villages who will care about the villages who are totally destroyed and uh, sometimes i feel that look they're they're destroyed forever so it's it's all it's all the questions of priorities of course and what what, what do you see as as priorities of the future recovery well, I'd like to begin just, you know, with with what we do and how we see economic recovery. And 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 um, to start with, I am leading a foundation, United for Ukraine, um, that initially started working with um, emergency relief. So our one of our key programs is a really big emergency relief platform that gives information, support, legal support, housing for Ukrainians that were displaced outside of Ukraine. Now we started working in Ukraine. But for everyone, the founders, the team, it was really important to start recovery, you know. And at first, we didn't really know what what it is, what it's, what we even mean by recovery. So we uh, are are going to soon pilot our economic recovery initiative, and we are going to support micro, medium, uh, small, and medium sized businesses. And uh, why do we think we need to do this? We need to support financially first and foremost businesses in Ukraine. Um, and uh, this is necessary to do right now. We can't wait for the war to o- war to be over. 
we have to give people the tools to improve their livelihoods and create jobs and um, create products and support the economy because it is happening. It is there. And, um, you know, we believe that this is just really, really, really important. I think that this is absolutely, this is a very good approach. And, uh, you know, when you come to some uh, frontline cities like Slovyansk, for example, uh, you come there with the hypothesis that look, well, this 40 kilometers from the front line, you actually hear the front line. You, you hear the the artillery fights, which are around Bakhmut, not far away. And if Bakhmut is in trouble, so Slavyansk will be in a very big trouble. But then you realize that, you know, there are some cafes which are open, that there are some shops which are open, and you can visit them. And, of course, they're full with Ukrainian military. And uh, the same with Kramatorsk, which is nearby. But then you realize that, look, okay, there is only several restaurants which are open, but you still still, still can get a delicious food there. And uh, you actually ask a question how to support people living there because Kramatorsk was full of international organizations after 2014 because it, 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 it is the center of the Donetsk Oblast when Donetsk is occupied. But then after 2022, after 24th of February, international institutions have left. There is, there is no international institutions. They care about security of their workers. Well, this is understandable on the one hand, but the locals are there. They, of course, not not leaving. Uh, many people have stayed there. So it's it's a big question how to, to help people to survive and make, make uh, jobs in those local areas. For example, Kramatorsk is dependent on the big uh, machine enterprise, which is not working now during the war. Uh, and therefore, I, I, I think that your approach is very correct. But let me ask about details, how you think it is possible to go to, you know, towns, cities, cities which are always in danger of being bombed and still give give people a chance to set up a business or develop a business. Oh, um we have one of the streams that we're going to support is relocation within Ukraine. So, for example, you are a uh, you are a, you know a small business in you know in a dangerous area, and you can you need funds to relocate uh, to Western Ukraine. So we can support this relocation. And also we have a separate stream within the Emergency Recovery Initiative that is called Women Lead. So we want to support specifically, for example, women entrepreneurs. So in addition to financing, we will also support this business with, um, you know, mentoring and, you know, sharing of knowledge. And depending on the size of the business, for example, if it's a small or medium-sized business, Later on, we hope this business can uh, be eligible, for example, for bank funding. Uh, so that's, you know, a really exciting perspective. Um, I would also just mention that personally, having had a business in Ukraine and having, I still have a business in Ukraine, 
I understand how this is really lacking, right? I mean, people don't need advice or, you know, they don't need just foreigners showing up and telling them how to live. Yes, of course, knowledge, it's very important. But, you know, sometimes people just need twenty, thirty thousand dollars to do what they need to do and expertise. So certain grants really changed my life, changed the life of my business. And I really understand how that can change someone, someone's life. That's amazing. And uh, uh, the aids you're providing are primarily grants, right? So it's people a grant. Do not... it's a, it's, 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 these are grants and it, the size depends on the size of the business. For example, if you're a micro company, um, then, uh, you know, it's a smaller grant. If it's a small and medium-sized company and we actually want to measure the impact of this grant, then it's a larger grant. It could be $20,000, $30,000. It could be more. Um, so these are, you know, these are the kinds of grants we're talking about. And these are indeed grants. There is a big demand for, uh, for, for, for this kind of financing from Ukrainian technological industry, I think. And this is something the country badly needs. What we see right now is how the country needs, for example, technology in uh, drones, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in supervision drones, for example, on the front line to, to make the intelligence work. And this is something that Ukraine has a capacity to do, uh, potentially, but uh, as far as we see, there is no big state program on that. Uh, does this mean that foundations like yours can support some some technological startups like this? Um, I, you know, I think that there's room for everyone because the situation is so dire. And when we win, there will be so much to rebuild. Then I think everyone is welcome. I think there's a lot of talk about like large recovery, you know, state level, but I think there's a really big space for smaller foundations to partner with larger organizations or just do solo work and give grants, uh, you know, or invest. But I think in, in our case, we are giving grants uh, in, in different kinds of areas, in different kinds of industries. Currently, what we're looking at is a lot of, you know, mom and pop shops, let's say, right? Like one of the cases I can speak of is of a woman next to Kiev and her, her husband ran a cheese factory and he died while at war. He was killed. Uh, and um, now she's left running this cheese business you know, have, having no skills. So, you know, these are the kinds of cases I'm talking about because obviously high tech, I think the high, more high tech uh, sphere will also get attention. And frankly, I think it all, always gets more attention, you know, like IT or, or, you know, any kinds of potentially like military oriented technology, you know, but what about all the other guys, right? You know, so we we want to focus on on them and and just you know see what the possibilities are where can can the funds come from so are they coming from uh, international donors are they coming from private investors are they coming from uh, mecenats uh, philanthropists everyone so philanthropists uh you know 
private companies, um, institutional donors, and I really welcome those interested to reach out. We're looking for partners, looking for donors. Um, and why I'm super excited about our team is that we are primarily, uh, you know, it's a Ukrainian team, not only Ukrainians, but it's, you know, it's a lot of people from Ukraine, Ukraine diaspora. And why I think it's important is because very often international aid of any kind comes from, you know, international people telling the locals, you know, what to do and how they live to live their life, you know, and how to report you know, just to report well to like their bosses. I mean, we actually know what's happening. We live there. We, 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 we work there. We understand, you know, the banking system there, the donor system. We understand people's needs. We really, you know, we understand what people need and what that will give, what kind of benefit that can give for Ukrainian society, for Ukrainian development, for potential Ukrainian EU accession. So this is, I think this is really, really different from what's happening, you know, uh, potentially with 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 other donors. And this is why I'm excited really about this organization. And it's horrible that this war is happening. But finally, there are Ukraine-led organizations and people actually internationally that can lobby for Ukraine. And this is really good. Yeah. So to our listeners, I would say, I would tell you that if you... If you are a mecenat or a philanthropist and we are getting lots of questions how people can help Ukraine and uh, uh, we refer to some well-known volunteer funds, we refer to our own activities, but you, you also know right now about uh, uh, Dana's organization but where, where you can engage. Definitely, because if this is something that your organization is passionate about, if you're passionate about economic recovery and um, uh, this this realm, this is, you know, this is really what we do and this is uh, something that we want to develop further. Right. Um, let me Let me ask you, well, of course, there are, there, there are charities like right there, they're helping Ukraine, and uh, there are foreign governments that uh, uh, I'm sure that will are thinking already now, are doing some work now. We we see, for example, in in, in different places in Ukraine, how uh, on the case by case basis, uh, some countries are entering, or for example, the Japanese entered a, a, a town, I think, of Makariv and then helped with to rebuild the library or something like this. And w we see uh, right now lots of such projects. But then you ask a question, okay, how can we interest international business? How we can think not in terms of donations, but in terms of investment? And uh, for businesses, it's obviously, it seems that, look, investing in, in Ukraine right now this is crazy. I mean, the country is at war. We will we'll have losses. No way we would rather withdraw from Ukraine. But if you are in Ukraine, you understand that, look, 90% of the country is 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 working as, as it was working. Of course, we suffer from missile strikes, from cuts of electricity, uh, from uh, problems of infrastructure, but it's not like there is nothing that is just ruins. It's it's also about the media picture of the war that it it is always 
kind of uh, uh, disproportionate, right, and and distorted. What would you say to to foreign businessmen who to to encourage them to invest into Ukraine now or maybe? Maybe late. I, I think it's too soon to speak. Uh, uh, first of all, I'll go back to, in you know, countries uh, supporting and rebuilding like cities or villages. It's great. More has to be done. And this is phenomenal. But this doesn't really help, you know, a certain business or entrepreneur. Right. So there's, you know, you need to help, you know, the little guy, you know, you know, you need to help the businesses, for example. Right. And there's, you know, huge room to support there. Investments, in our, our case, we are planning to support with grants small and medium-sized businesses and see if they are investment-ready later on. So we will track their path and we'll see the impact of this uh, grant. And we hope that some of these businesses will be ready for investment. And when they're ready for investment, when they're ready for uh, bank loans, you know, when we win and that's going to happen. So, you know, this is, this is where we're going. So currently, currently, uh, businesses can, you know, support our angel donors for angel donations, for example, and, you know, track, you know, what, what these companies are doing, where they're going and, and potentially invest in the future. And, but currently I think it's, it's, I'm not sure it's realistic to say that, you know, guys, you know, come and invest in in a um, in Ukraine. Right, right. But uh, I, I still have a feeling that there is there is some room to, to, to think about. I'm, I'm not a businessman, but there is some room to think about. I mean, <laughs> even even the the country at war has has this always these some new opportunities i mean electricity right now right for sure if you're if you're a producer of generators you would be fantastically rich very very yes. very soon yes. or if you're a distributor of, of generators or if you are if you distributor of a new technologies uh, new internet technologies the uh, the optics cables etc you would be very rich in, in probably several months because uh, people really need that. So I do think that there is, you know, every country which is which is in trouble, it always there are always niches that are open up and, and, and actually you, you should fill them because there is nobody probably that, that will fill them. A- amen. Me... Amen. Invest in Ukraine. Yeah, exactly. Let me ask uh, you about um, about the way how how you see the social situation. What troubles me is, of course, demographics, and uh, there are so many people who left Ukraine, and primarily there are so many kids who left Ukraine. There are so many young adults who who left Ukraine. Uh, may, the, the 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 key image, the key. Um, the, the the key the typical figure of a Ukrainian refugee is a mother with a child or with children, right? Uh, men mostly stay in Ukraine because uh, un- under legal under legal conditions of not not uh, leaving the country if you are able to do the military service. 
And this, of course, troubles me because uh, these are young people. They're making, they go to school abroad and uh, they enter the the local environment. And if they enter the university at the bachelor level, level uh, most probably they will never come back. Do you have this fear that, okay, even after the victory, Ukraine would be much less populated country and much older country and therefore we have big we, we are in big trouble and if yes how to eventually bring people back how to work with people right now who are abroad and how to develop this thinking this dream that look i will certainly come back it's a really complex question and uh, there's you know a lot of layers to this right um Due to the fact that I am a abroad and I work with displaced people who are displaced outside of Ukraine, I I see you know you know their interests and and their um, you know and their feelings and I will say that many do want to go back and I think many will go back. It's it's really difficult to say what number. Even in terms of what we will do, we obviously will shift our focus to, you know, relocation, helping people relocate when the time is right and giving them the tools to come go back. Right. And actually, you know, we all we want to just tie both of our initiatives together, you know, so a person who was displaced can, for example, return to Ukraine and, you know, get a grant for their business, let's say. Right. Um. It's people do have faith that they will return and faith has to has to be there. I, I have faith. I, you know, I have faith in victory first and foremost, but we do have to understand that it is going to be a different country and many people will not return, but it's going to be a country with colossal possibilities and many people will like that. Not everyone enjoys living, you know, in, in Germany, you know, people like living in Ukraine and it's going to be a, I mean, I just I just imagine that after we win, it's going to be a country just booming with riches and just so many business possibilities. And it's going to be a great place to live. I mean, Kiev is such a happening city. I mean, even during war, people tell me that there's parties. It's fun. I mean, obviously, some of these people certainly don't have kids and it's hard for the elderly, but, you know, for the younger population. Um, and also on the plus side, we finally have a huge diaspora internationally. People are studying in universities. There will be Ukrainian uh, study faculties finally. Maybe we won't be part of the Russian studies faculties uh, for once. There is Ukrainian lobbyists and Ukrainian business people and Ukrainian marketers. And all these people are super passionate now about helping Ukraine. And I've met a lot of people who lived abroad for a ton, many years, and now they're really engaged. And I think they will continue being engaged. And I think Ukraine needs to have a really strong international lobby. We have to have a strong international lobby because, you know, problems will persist. And, you know, we have to lobby our case for as long as we exist. Yeah, that's that's very important important case. I think uh, many of our problems, including our presence in the world, uh, you know, 
they they have been caused by by the fact that there is nobody who would talk for us and and about us and now there is there are millions of people many of them are highly educated uh who are able to to talk to and to advocate and this is of course very very important and we can speak you know we 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 have we keep waiting for someone to speak for us we have to speak for ourselves um internationally yeah coming back to what you say about the parties in kiev i would tell you that not only in kiev when we went to mykolaiv in late december mykolaiv was under constant russian shelling for over over six months starting from february until november when kherson was liberated and when kherson was liberated the russian troops went went to a longer distance so they could not shell Mykolaiv from artillery. And uh, we went to several fantastic restaurants, Ukrainian restaurants, and uh, we went to a a truly wonderful jazz concert. And uh, people who were playing the jazz concert, musicians, they were very good musicians. And at the same time, there are volunteers who were collecting, you know, funds for for their trips to to the villages to Kherson itself which is now an, unfortunately a very dangerous place shelled by the Russians from the other side of the Dnipro river uh with artillery but uh, but the, the the life is is going on in in the cities which were under big trouble only very recently the same even bigger story about Kharkiv Kharkiv is a very vital very strong in terms of culture and we reported about this many times on our podcast. So I agree with you that when the war is over, there is a huge room for possibility and we can compare it with post-war Europe, post-World War II Europe. We will not, we cannot explain these 30 glorious years, as, as the French are saying, without the fact that many things were destroyed and they they needed to be Rebuilt, but unfortunately, there is another option. Of course, there is an option of the uh, long-term stagnation of the post-war countries, and we know that from our history, from the history of the 17th century, the so-called ruina, from the history of of of, of the 18th century, and we should keep these two possibilities in mind. I think we should understand that both possibilities are possible, and therefore, of course, the the engagement of the world into recovery and reconstruction is a big thing and uh, it will be it can be beneficial for for, for the investors themselves therefore I'm, i keep asking about the investors because if they come and they should probably now be preparing to 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 come to enter in mass 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 numbers if they come they can do lots of things and and earn money right on development you know, the, anything can happen and, you know, it's good to have, you know, worst case scenario somewhere in the back of your head. I I mean, this is just the way, like, I roll, I believe in the best, and I just see everything being really great. And I think that Ukrainians are just so resilient. I mean, the fact that people are running businesses in this economy, they're doing everything possible to keep going. Um, people are looking for solutions, and I, I, I can see so many people who are outside of Ukraine for, for reasons like, you know, moms with kids, they can't wait to go back and just go back to what they were doing, their businesses, and 
I just, that's the hope that's, that's alive in my heart. What do you think about cultural recovery? Uh, because, of course, culture suffers a lot during these times. Museums are empty. We, we went recently to Odessa Art Museum. We made a few conversations there for our Ukrainian podcast. And it's a, a little surreal to see the empty walls on which the the paintings should be hanging, uh, but uh, you can see only the all the names of the authors and the titles of the paintings. And of course, paintings are relocated. They 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 are they are somewhere either in the underground or they are relocated into the western Ukraine uh, for various reasons. First, the museum can be an object of a missile attack, and second, what happened in Kherson museums, both the art museum and the the country museum is that Russians have just stolen the the whole uh, the whole uh, the whole collection, and these are tens of thousands of of art objects. And therefore, in museums, you know, uh, you cannot just go to a museum and see paintings right now. They're they're, they're all kind of uh, safeguarded. The same story was with music, of course, with music concerts. Well, how, how you make a music concert or a theater performance when there is a risk of shelling. But the culture is coming back with music concerts, with theaters. And what was remarkable in Mykolai, for example, is that uh, a Russian missile hit the local theater. So it is impossible really to, 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 do, to do regular theater performances. But... Uh, they are now doing on the, in the underground stage, uh, a very small underground stage. So this is how culture is persisting. How how you see the cultural recovery? I think culture always gets hit the hardest, but the you know it's 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 really tough for the creative industries, for you know not only for culture for culture arts creative industries. It's just really horrible you know situation. And we'd like to give a shout out to the Emergency Art Fund that's working in Ukraine. And they're doing a phenomenal job at fundraising and supporting artists and museums in Ukraine. Um, you know, just really outstanding work and necessary work. But when we win, God willing, and there will be economic boom, there will, all, will always be a spillover into culture. Um on, also, on the positive side, if it's even possible to find positives in this situation, you know, there's there's cultural events and, and Ukraine is being spoken about outside of Ukraine, which is great and, and finally happening. You know, there's exhibitions and, and books and shows and, 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 and it's great that, you know, Ukrainian culture is, is, you know, part of some sort of international dialogue. But I've said it before and I will say it again. The government has to support culture. It's something that has to be supported by the government, by businesses, and it has to be really big, big, big part of, you know, our DNA. Finance, Do you financing see, culture and the arts. I have seen in the years before this big war uh, that among among these certain educated Ukrainian businesses, it became fashionable to in some way support culture at least at least you know go to the concerts or talk to artists or give some funds or support some exhibitions 
do you think this this fashion will continue and yes. we will finally have yeah. have uh, philanthropists and mecenas who will be systematically supporting culture inside Ukraine? Uh you you know it's just an evolution really. I think some things, you know, just progress in the way they're supposed to progress. So I think a society that's developed that's moving towards, you know, a a a European society, it's a kind of society where the state and government and businesses support the arts and culture, you know? So it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. We're just going to do what, what, you know, what we're meant to do. And um, I think if we're going to, you know, integrate into Europe, this is inevitable, which is great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Dana, for this conversation. It's, it's very, very interesting and very nice to talk to you. And uh, good luck with your fantastic work. Thank you very much and um, good luck to Ukraine. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front line at paypal ukraine.resistinggmail.com. You will find this information in the description of this podcast. Thank you for listening. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.